0: From Bayside Church International, Victor Harbour, this is Chad Mansbridge. Are you ready? Start the recording. Start the clock, that's right. Start the clock now. Actually, I might have to take a tone back in my, in my, uh, in my tone because I actually, I want to do like a teaching today. But I can still do that energetically, can't I Rob? I'm sure I can. Uh, Today, we're going to be essentially launching week one of our series that we introduced last week. We called it This Is Us. This Is Us. We're going to look at seven core identity pillars. I'll mention the reason for that later. This is our winter teaching and preaching series. And today, we're going to start part one, looking at the subject of the church being God's garden. The church as God's garden. Why not you turn with me, and this may, and that may sound an obscure passage, but the end of Deuteronomy, so it's the fifth book in the Bible, uh, part of the Torah, the books of Moses, the last book. Deuteronomy at the end of Deuteronomy is just about when Moses is about to die and God's people are about to be led by Joshua into the Promised Land. So turn to uh, Deuteronomy 32, and then we're going to be looking later at John Chapter 15. Last week I sent, uh, basically established the, the, the basic concept for this series. And it comes from Matthew 16, where Jesus says, Listen, there's all different rumours going around about who people say I am, but who do you say? He asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up, or Simon, his name was at that stage, and he says, I know who you are. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, 10 points, 10 out of 10, absolutely correct. This has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And then he says this, Peter, or Simon, I now tell you who you are. You are no longer Simon, you are Peter, which means rock, little rock. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. He renamed Peter from Simon to Petros, which means a little rock, and he said, And on this rock, which is another Greek word, Petra, on this rock, I will build a church. This whole passage is about identity. It's about knowing who Jesus is. <gasps> I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I know. I've, I, I understand from heaven who you are. Number one, knowing who Jesus is. Number two, knowing who you are as an individual. Because Simon, now that you know who I am, I'm going to tell you who you are. You are a little rock. You are Petros. You are, I mean, don't you know that a little rock, that Christian, you know what Christian means? A little Christian, a little Christ. Okay, little Christ. So the same concept here. You are a little rock. Now that you know who I am, I want you to know, Simon, who you are. And now that you know who you as an individual are, I want you to know that I'm going to build a community of you. The church, and I want to describe to you what that community is going to be like, it will advance against the powers of Hades. And I made the interesting point last week that while this is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is used, as a preacher I have to impress you, make you think I know Greek, okay, I don't really, but the word's ecclesia. It's the first time in the New Testament the word ecclesia is used, I will build my Ecclesia, it's not an unfamiliar term to Jesus' audience. Because for about 250 years, these Jewish people had their Hebrew Bible written in Greek. And in that edition of the Bible, for 250 years, they had the word Ecclesia appear over and over again, at least 100 times, mostly by Moses. The word simply means assembly, or a gathered together group of people. So while it may be the first time it's used in the New Testament, it's not really, strictly speaking, the first time it's used. For hundreds of years, they'd used in their literature this word ecclesia to describe God's assembly. And this got me thinking this week. Because I thought, I suddenly was reminded of a passage where the word assembly, ecclesia, and God being the rock were used together. In the Old Testament and that's why we're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 32. All right, the end of 31, I'm going to pick up from there and we're going to read Moses together. So again, this is the end of Moses's life. They've been 40 years wandering in the desert. You all remember our series from last season, okay? Did a series on Exodus. This is the end of that after 40 years of wandering around in the dirt. All right, Moses gathers this generation together and he says this to them, setting the context in verse 28. Talking to the Levites, he says, Now summon all the leaders and officials of your tribes so I can speak to them and call heaven and earth to witness against them. I know that after my death, (laughs) you will become utterly corrupt and turn from the path I've commanded you to follow. Yeah, real pessimist after 40 years. But he was a prophet. So he wasn't being emotional. He was a prophet. He knew what was going to happen. In the days to come, some of your Bibles say in the latter days, disaster will come down on you, for you will make the Lord very angry by doing what's evil in his sight. So Moses recited this entire song to the assembly of Israel. Moses is setting them up for a major prophetic word and is putting it in the form of a song or in the form of poetry so that they will remember it. They would sing this word generation after generation after generation and remember this prophecy. Okay, Moses, among many other things, is called a prophet. Okay, he's a prophet. He is prophesying something here in this chapter. And it is really depressing. <laughs> so we'll only read some of it. Alright? But it's Moses' longest prophecy. Said just before his death. So it was really important for them. To know, okay, he's writing, he puts it in the form of a song. Chapter 32 begins. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words I say. My teaching will fall on you like rain. My speech will settle like the dew. My words will fall like rain on tender grass, like gentle showers on young plants. Some of your translations say on young plants. Plants. Just thought I'd throw that in. Interesting. See this imagery. Moses is talking to the congregation, the assembly, the ecclesia, and he refers to them as plant life. My words coming to you are like water coming and feeding these plants. Okay, Like water coming from heaven. Feeding the soil, etc. Moses has three songs in the Bible. The first one he sung when they came out of the Red Sea, a lot of celebration, woohoo, that's awesome. The second one is in Psalm 90, which is apparently is credited to Moses. And this is the third one. This is the longest one, it's the one quoted seven times in the New Testament. So there's differences between them, okay? The first song when they came out of the Red Sea was like, oh, oh God's awesome, we're on an adventure, this is going to be great. This song's so depressing, it's like disaster's gonna come. So they're different, but one thing these three songs all have in common is that Moses identifies his people in terms of plant life. Interesting. Let's keep reading. Verse three. I will proclaim, because we're gonna to get to that later. Okay. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, how glorious is our God! He is the He is the what? The rock. So here we see Moses speaking to the Ecclesia, God's gathered assembly, and he announces over them God's name. What name does he choose to announce? Your God is the rock. Jesus did not come up with this idea on his own. That my assembly of people, my church that I would, build, would be building, will be built on the rock of the revelation of who I am. Moses prophesied that back in Deuteronomy. He gathered his church together, the assembly, and said, Your God is the rock. You can get a little bit more excited. I don't know. You don't have to. Okay. As you keep reading, we're not going to read all these verses because this is just an intro, but as you keep reading over these next few um, verses here, uh, verse 5 through to 14, Moses calls Israel, or calls God, their father. Okay, it's the first time God is specifically called Father in the Old Testament. He describes his people as the apple of his eye. As he talks, he talks about them as God being an eagle that carried them on his wings. And he intermingles this amazing creation language. He echoes the language of Genesis 1. Because yeah. he said, I found you in a barren land. It's the same word used in Genesis 1.1. The heavens and earth were without form and void. He said, I hovered over you. It's the same word in creation where it said the spirit hovered over the waters. So he uses this creation language to speak to them. It's amazing. And he speaks about how generous God will be to them. Because remember, this is prophecy. He's predicting their future. He talks about providing them with fruit and bread, milk and honey, meat, oil and wine. Sounds good, doesn't it? And then it gets bad, okay? (coughs) Let's skip ahead just to verse 15. Two more verses here. He said, but Israel, (coughs) predicting their future, no matter how generous God would be to you, he says this, verse 15, but Israel soon became fat and unruly. The people grew heavy, plump and stuffed. (laughs) God was feeding them all that good stuff, who can blame them, all right? (coughs) But they abandoned the God who had made them. They made light of the rock of their Salvation. Verse 18 says it this way. You neglected the rock who had fathered you. You will forget the God who gave you birth. Moses is predicting God is your rock. But in times to come, you will forget him. The one who is your father. The one who is your mother. Who not only fathered you, but birthed you. And profoundly in verse 15, he says you will make light of the rock your saviour. What is the Hebrew word for Savior? Think about Christmas. What do the angels come to say to Mary? You shall call him gee, no, You shall call him Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. The word salvation comes from the word Yeshua. So Moses is prophesying in in, in chapter 32 and saying, You will make light of the rock Yeshua. Is that that okay? Is it okay that 1400 years before Jesus comes, Moses prophesies, You're going to neglect the rock Yeshua? Jesus comes on 1400 years later, He is the rock that the builders rejected. He is the rock, their salvation. No surprise, Moses prophesied that 1,400 years earlier. You will neglect the rock, Yeshua. Okay, whatever. You've got to go home, read Deuteronomy 32. It is a major prophecy. And the language, the lingo, the motifs in there shape much of the Old Testament. What's your point, preacher? The point is this. The idea of building a community... On the rock revelation of who God really is, is nothing new. Moses gathers the Old Testament church and pronounces, this is who your God is and this is who you are. You are the apple of his eye. You are like tender plants. You are the children that he has born. He proclaims God's identity and he proclaims their identity over them. Jesus comes along 1,400 years later and says, I will build an assembly. And it will be built on the rock revelation of who I am and coupled with that, the rock revelation of who you are. On this rock, now that you've seen who I am, I want you to know who you are. On the rock revelation of identity, I will build a community. This passage is all about identity, my friends. Identity, embracing his identity, and embracing our identity is absolutely essential. And so we are doing a series on our identity in Christ. Amen. Two main things we want to do in this series. I want you to know who Jesus is, more than anything. I want you to know who he is, and I don't just want you to know about him. Ultimately, I want you to know him as who he is. I want you to know him more. And I, have a, I can play a small part in that. I can't do much about it. A lot of that's up to you, how much you draw near to him. But I'm going to do my best to help you to see him as he is. Okay? You need to know Jesus and know him. You need to know who you are, whose you are, and you need to know who you are. You need to live knowing who he is, and you need to walk in the revelation of who he says you are. And specifically in this series, because there's many ways we can approach this whole subject of identity. Heaps. Heaps and heaps and heaps. But specifically, I want to use the images that are very key, particularly to us here at Bayside. Back in 2014, our able ship went away and we workshopped an idea that the Lord had put on my heart. I asked our team, I said, listen, let's write down a lot of the key prophecies that God has given us as a church. What does God say about Bayside? Let's write down, secondly, a lot of the things that we are known for as a church. What is our current reputation? not just what heaven says about us, but what, are, what do people say about us? What are we actually living in? And thirdly, let's write down what we want to see Bayside become. Amen. Okay, let, let's pitch past, present and future. What is God's vision for us or picture for us? And as a result of that workshop, we walked out using Proverbs 9 with seven core pillars that we stand for as a church. Every church is or should be built on the rock solid foundation of Christ and who he is. Yeah. But you can have two Slabs next to each other in a land development. Two two slabs of concrete, and they can look identical because they've got the same foundation. But once you start putting the framework up, this house is a one-story house. This house suddenly is two, but the same foundation. This one has one bedroom. This one uh, bathroom. This one has three, and you can tell that because of the infrastructure that is put into place. So the slab may be made of the same stuff, but each local church has distinct pillars that say this is who we are and it makes us different from others, not better than, this is just the prophetic purpose upon this church. And so because of that, I want you to know who you are, I want you to know who Jesus is first and foremost, but we also, the reason we've chosen uh, seven particular identities is because we feel that they have particular prophetic pertinence to us here at this local church. Okay, and so I kind of want to bring in general truth and then specific, hey, Bayside, this is who you are, truth. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. That's where we're going. Have you found John 15? Have I, have I told you to do that yet? <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Turn to John 15. First identity we're looking at today is that we are God's garden. We are God's garden. We're going to ask ourselves, what does this identity teach us about God or Christ? What does this identity teach us about ourselves and how does that shape our view of church and specifically here at Bayside. John 15 is set in the context of Jesus in Jerusalem, the capital city of the day for his people, Israel people. And uh, they're having a Passover meal. They're having what we call the Last Supper. But for them, they just knew it as a a Passover festival that they did every year. He's basically having a lamb roast with his mates and some nice Shiraz. And um, that's what we're going to read. There are many, many scriptures I could use to talk about us being God's garden, but I just really felt God put this one on my heart this week, okay? In fact, my life verse, if you're allowed to have one of those, my life verse that when I was dedicated as a baby in my church, when I, when I was a baby, an older lady prophesied over me and spoke Isaiah 58, 11 and 12. Isaiah 58. My personal ministry is called I-58-12 because of that. Isaiah 58 says this, among other things. It says, God will guide you, he will strengthen you, he will satisfy you, and you will be like a well-watered garden whose spring never fails to bubble forth. That's like a life verse for me. So I could have used that one, but I'm not going to. I'm using John 15, okay? (laughs) That was just for free, John 15. I'm going to read. I'm reading from the New Living. Um, If you've never seen me preach before, I like to do what... um, Paul encouraged Timothy to do in the Bible read scripture, preach it, and teach it. And so I'm going to do a bit of that today. I'm going to read, I'm going to explain some things, and then I'm going to preach, and and hopefully you're going to holler, wave some hankies or something. All right. Chapter 15. We don't have chandeliers here. We've got downlights, so you can't really hang from anything. But anyway, okay, verse 15. Chapter 15. Jesus speaking, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener, or the vine dresser. Some of your versions say the farmer. Keep reading. He cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit and prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned for greater fruitfulness by the message I've given to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch can't produce fruit if it's severed from the vine and you can't be fruitful apart from me. Yes, I'm the vine and you are the branches. For those who remain in me and I in them, they'll produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who parts from me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you stay joined to me and my words remain in you, you may ask any request you like and it will be granted. My true disciples produce much fruit. And this brings great glory to my dad. I have loved you even as the father has loved me. So now remain in my love. I'm hoping today you leave knowing that this is an entirely encouraging passage of scripture. Very simple, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. I've got a, a, this is a nice picture of a vine here, but I thought I'd do a cartoon one just to, um, just to easily see it. We are the branches, or the branches, depending on your translation and Jesus is the vine now please understand Jesus does not say I am the trunk and you're the branches he doesn't say I'm the root system and you're the branches he says I am the he is the whole thing he is that whole thing he is the trunk He is the root system. He is the branch, the leaves, the fruit, the cordons, the canes, the trendles, all those little fancy terms that you have with the vine. He is the vine. That picture, as you're looking at it there, stump, root system, branches, that is what Jesus is saying. That is me. And you are the branches within that big picture of who I am. This is a collective metaphor. It's like how we say uh, Jesus... Uh, the, the church is the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ and we have many parts. Same picture. It's a, it's a collective picture. It is the body of the vine. I am. The, the vine is the vine of Christ and you are many parts in there. Yeah. Okay, so that's the first thing we need to get our head around. He is the vine and we are the branches. And again, Jesus is not pulling this illustration out of his thumb. I mean, maybe having the glass of wine at the supper sort of reminded him of grapes and vines and everything else. But this is not a new picture. Jesus is a rabbi. He is using Old Testament language here. This is borrowing Old Testament imagery. The Old Testament prophets and the psalmists, over and over again refer to Old Covenant Israel as being God's vine. A collective picture of the body of Old Covenant people that body is a vine, or later as they grow, they become a vineyard. Here's some verses for that. Psalm 80 verse 8, there's heaps of them. Psalm 88, you transplanted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. This is talking about God's people coming out of Egypt. They came out as a vine. Jeremiah two twenty-one. I had planted you like a choice vine, speaking to Israel, a choice, a sound and reliable stock And if you keep reading that verse, I don't have it on the screen, but if you keep reading that verse, it says, but now you've produced bad fruit and you are unclean no matter how many times you try to wash yourself. You are a vine that is unclean, Jeremiah says to them, even though you've washed yourself. What does Jesus say to the vines gathered around his table that night? You are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. It's the same word, two chapters earlier, when he washes Simon's feet and he says, you need me to clean you. Although one of you, is not clean, but the rest of you need me to clean you. So Jeremiah used it, that borrowed language from Jeremiah. These is a vine that is unclean. Jesus is now saying, you're my vine and I have made you clean. What Jeremiah could not do under the old covenant, I'm doing under the new. You can go home. You can read Isaiah. The whole, Most of chapter 5 of Isaiah is a song of the vineyard. God's singing a song about the vineyard, which is his people. The, the, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Ezekiel, chapters 15, the whole of chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 19, again and again, all describe Israel as, as a vine. What's your point, preacher? The vine is a collective identity. Old Covenant Israel began as a single vine... But over their history, they multiplied into a large vineyard in the promised land. That is a picture all throughout the scripture. That God's people are his vine. As they multiply a vineyard, Jesus is coming along to say, I am the vine, you're all together with me, we are the vine. And I've made you clean. And that's why in verse 1, Jesus doesn't say, just say, I am the vine. Look at your Bible. He specifically says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Emphasis now on true. He is using that word true because he is using it to compare himself with the older vine. I am the true vine. This is a comparative word. It's often used to contrast that which is physical to that which is spiritual, that which is temporary to that which is eternal, that which was old covenant to that which is new covenant, that which is earthly to that which is heavenly. Look at these scriptures, Luke 16, 11. Jesus said, if you've not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you can't be faithful with something that's temporary, who can trust you with something that's eternal? He's comparing those riches. John 4, he talks to the woman at the well and he said that it used to be right to worship God at this physical mountain, but now the time has come where true worshippers will worship in spirit and truth. So he's contrasting the way of worship in the old covenant, now the true worship is in the new covenant. In the book of Hebrews, it mentions at least twice there, chapter 8 and chapter 9, he talks about the man-made tabernacle of Moses and how this thing was just a shadow, but there is a True tabernacle, which is in heaven. True, true. So this is a contrasting term. So when, when Jesus comes on and says, I am the true vine, he is painting the picture of what was in the old, I am now new. What was temporary, I am now eternal. What is earthly and fleshly, I is now spirit and life and heavenly. Okay? That make any sense? The point is, throughout history... Old Covenant Israel had been God's vine. Collectively, they were his vine. And the first mention of this picture, incidentally, is in that Song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32. That's a very key prophetic word. But that image of God's people being his vine served as a shadow, served as a type of the substance that Jesus would bring with the community that he would build. In literary terms, we call this a type and an anti type. The reality is in Christ, his community, the true vine. And the vine with many branches. Okay? At the first Exodus, what Jesus is doing here, I believe, is calling people out of the old covenant community and calling them, because that's what they're doing, they're celebrating Passover. When, we, when this old covenant community was birthed, he's calling his disciples out of that and saying, you are now a part of a new covenant community joined to me. Because the one greater than Moses is now here. Moses gave you bread from heaven, he says in John. But Jesus says, I am the true bread from heaven. Moses gave you an earthly sanctuary, but my worship is from a heavenly sanctuary sanctuary. A true sanctuary that is in heaven. Do you see that? You've been part of an old vine, but now you're part of me, and I am the true vine. So I was painting a picture there of contrast. It is a picture of community. It is a community picture. Am I making any sense to you all? If Jesus is the vine, then who is God the Father? He is the gardener. He is the farmer. He is the vine keeper. And I love this picture of God. Because a farmer or a gardener is one who both creates and then cares for what he has created. The Bible from beginning to end, the opening verses to the closing chapters, pictures God creating. First five words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. What do we see at the other end of the Bible? Jesus saying, Behold, I make all things new. God creates, but then he cares and he cultivates what he creates. And both creation counts have a garden scene with the tree of life and water flowing. And as I said before, It's profound to me, and and you can take this or leave it, I don't care. But when Jesus rose from the dead and the women went looking for him, they went to the garden to find him, and they saw a man that was Jesus, but they mistook him for what? A gardener. And I'm of the opinion that the reason he looked like a gardener is because the first thing he did when he rose from the dead was get his hands in the dirt. He is a gardener. He is a creator and God not only creates, but he cares for what he has made. And some of you need to hear that today. God is committed to looking after what he's started. God is committed to caring for what he has begun. I'm convinced of this. He who has begun a good work in you will carry it through and complete it. God is committed to caring for what he has started. He is committed to the growth and prosperity of his garden, adding what is helpful and removing that which is not. Which brings us to verse 2. And I'm going to show you something today I hope really blesses you. Verse 2 in the version that I read and in most of your Bibles says this. He, being God, my father, the gardener, cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. He prunes the branches that do so that they will develop even more. He cuts off every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit. Are you ready to look at this a bit closer? Would you like to? You don't have to. You can go home if you like. I'll just leave it hanging. This rendering makes a lot of sense when you consider the way that God dealt with people in the old covenant era. You go home and you read Isaiah chapter 5, the song of the vineyard, and God says to them, I planted you, I built a wine press, I built a watchtower, I watered you, this is all the language that Jesus borrows 1,400 years later. It all comes from Isaiah, or 1,000 years later, whatever, 500, 600. He, I'm no good at maths, okay? Um, uh, he says, I built this beautiful vineyard, but when I came looking for fruit, it was bad fruit. And so what I said was, I'm going to let you be destroyed. Cut you down, burn you up, that's it. So that's the way God, through the prophets, spoke to his people when they didn't produce good fruit. So this translation... My father's the gardener, and he cuts off the branches of mine that don't produce fruit. That makes sense in light of the way God dealt with people in the old covenant era. Because after all, that was their deal. If you disobey, I will curse you, cut you off, devastation, defeat, doom, death and disaster will fall upon you. Okay, It's all there in the Hebrew. So this is what he said. So this rendition makes sense. But here's the thing, when you read something in the scripture... And it doesn't sit that well with you for what you know of Jesus in the new covenant. When you come across a verse like this that you think, crikey. Jesus is saying that if I am in him, I'm part of his vine, I am his vine. If I have a bad year, the father's going to come and kill me. Cut me off. Take me away from Christ. That's kind of how that reads. Mm -hmm. In the English. That's kind of how that reads. When you read that and you think, that doesn't really gel with the rest of the good news of the gospel that I know, you have two options. You either do what most of us do and you read over it very quickly to get to a nice verse. okay? (laughs) All of you do that, okay? Or you take the time as a student and you dig a little deeper. You go to biblehub.com or whatever and you start looking at the language used and you ask yourself, Is this what Jesus meant when he said this? Or is it possible that my English translation may have read the understanding of what God was like in the Old Testament and carried that through to something Jesus says in the New? I'm not being critical. I'm not trying to find fault, but it doesn't sit well with me. So I'm going to research it a little bit because I'm a student. And if you do that, like I did, This is what you'll find. That word there for cut off, you just go on a a Greek program, click the word, okay? In the Greek, it is the word eros. And the Greek word eros has multiple meanings. Look down the bottom. The word ero may mean to remove, to put away, to take and to take away. Or it may mean to lift, to bear, to carry, to pick up. To raise up, to hoist up. Two quite different connotations. Take away, remove, take, or lift up, raise up, carry up. Same word, two different meanings. The question is, which one best fits the context? Let's look at how this word is used in other parts of the Gospels. Mark chapter 2. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. That's that same word. He wasn't... What happens when you carry a man on a mat? Four of you are lifting him up off the ground to help him. What did Jesus say to this man? I say to you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. And we see, as you read the rest of the story, he picks up his mat and he starts walking. Because the Pharisee is saying, hey, well, how come you're picking up and carrying your mat? So that word can mean, pick up off the ground and hold it close to you. Luke 9. Afterward, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 20 verse 9. Eutychus, a young man, was sound asleep in a window while Paul was preaching. He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Can you picture that in your head, what happened? What happened? They run downstairs, he is in the dirt, not in a good condition. What do they do? They cut him off and remove him. <laughs> no, that's no. That would be a bad English use of that word. So the translators know, they picked him up. They picked up the pieces of leftovers off the ground. They picked up off the ground the mat. They picked up their friend. Is it possible does it not fit the character of Jesus better as you know him and the nature of the new covenant? That when I am intricately in part, uh, joined with Christ as a part of his vine, if I have a fruitless year, does, is it the nature of the Father in the new covenant to come and say, you've had a bad year, I'm going to cut you down and kill you? You're out of Christ. Or is it the nature of the Father to come to a fruitless branch and pick it up. The Passion Translation. Brian Simmons, the Passion Translation, picks this up, (laughs) so to speak. He puts it this way. The farmer who tends the vine is my father. He cares for the branches connected to me by lifting and propping them up. You see, if you're a good gardener and you have a vine, okay, you've got a McLaren Vale, Wollongong, you've got a vine. It's healthy, good soil, good rain. All the branches are producing fruit except one of them. Is there a problem with the vine? No. That branch needs extra attention. And why doesn't a branch bear fruit when all the other branches around it are? Because that branch is either... Broken, or I believe, what makes branches fruit is the sun. In September, we're going to drive through Vale, Wollonga, it's going to be lit up with flowers because vines bud their flowers in spring. But the fruit grows over summer because what vines need to be fruitful is a hang of a lot of sun. That's why we harvest at the end of summer. The more sun, the better. If a branch is fruitless... It's because it has not been exposed to the light of the sun. And a good farmer would come along, notice that, and he would lift that branch up and expose it to the light so that it can bear the fruit that it was destined for. My friends, I've got good news for you. If you believe you've lived a fruitless Christian life, or maybe you've just had a bad season, God will not cut you off of Jesus. Because you are not in an old covenant where that was his promise to God's people. You screw up, I'm finished with you. No, we're in a greater covenant, a better covenant, part of the true vine where the farmer sees you struggling to bear fruit and his solution to is you need to expose yourself to the sun. Let me lift you up so the sun can shine on you. You need sunlight. And in the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, we live in the New Testament particularly, light is a picture of truth. Light is truth. Let the light of Christ shine on you. Jesus, another I am statement, said, I am the light of the world. And John puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the true light. Same word. The true light. We've had light under Moses. God gave us truth. God revealed things to us in the old covenant, but now Jesus comes as the true light. Oh, sinner, let that light shine upon you. Yeah. What you need when you're going through a fruitless season is not to get down on yourself, is not to think God's going to come and cut you up and burn you off and separate you from Jesus. Somehow, I don't know, how many seasons can I go through without producing fruit? To the gardener comes and chops me. Is there a magic bell in heaven? Ding, ding, time's up. How do I know? Has God cut me off already? And I just don't know. No, his desire is to lift you up into the sun. He wants truth to shine on you. The truth of the gospel. The truth of who you are. And who he is. Come on. God's desire. He's a good gardener. We sing that song, don't we? You're a good, good gardener. It's who you are. I'm lifted up by you. God will lift you up. I want to speak to three groups of people today. If you feel you're a Christian who's feeling unfruitful in your faith, God will not remove you from Christ. He wants to lift you into the light of his son. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians who had some pretty bad fruit happening in their church. He didn't threaten them and say, if you keep sleeping with temple prostitutes, God's going to cut you out of Christ. If you keep getting drunk at communion, God's going to cut you out of Jesus. If you keep eating food sacrificed to idols and not being considerate of other people, Paul doesn't say God's going to cut you off. His solution is, I want you to know who you are. You're united with Christ. You are sanctified. You are justified. This behaviour is unfitting for you. You dorks. It's doing you a no good because you're not walking into tr- the truth of who you are. But the, who you are is not changed. You're still connected to a healthy bind. But you need to come out into the light. And that's why I want to remind you of what is most important, 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for your sin. You need to be exposed to the wonder of the gospel. And as the light shines on you, you'll be fruitful again. Now Jesus did say to these disciples, I want you to remain in me. I want you to abide in me in me. If you don't, there's this risk of being thrown into the fire. Okay, Chad, well, that sounds pretty serious. Yeah, but you've got to, still got to remember, at this point in history, the new vine and the old vine existed side by side. The old covenant was still in existence. And these guys were Jewish guys. They were born up in the old vine. They'd come to Jesus and attached themselves to him. And he's saying, listen, don't detach yourself and go back to the old. Because that thing has a beginning and it has an ending and it's ending very soon. So do not you need to stay with me. Okay, You've come out of that system. You've come out of that vine because the, the temple was still there. The curtain was still in place. All that, that, that system was still valid. The old covenant was still in existence. Don't go back there. Don't detach yourself from what I'm doing. Remain in me. Don't go back there. And of course, he said this in the context of Judas already leaving the table. Okay, Judas had already left by now. We need left, so possibly he was talking there. The, the, the point is, there's a lot of discussion, and we can argue and debate about whether a Christian can take themselves away from Christ. I strongly believe not, but there are good arguments and good men who believe otherwise. But they're wrong. You can. <laughs> I believe you cannot remove. Now that the old covenant doesn't exist, I believe that doesn't. You can't remove yourself from Jesus. You can debate that, but this is what you cannot debate. I am absolutely certain that God will not remove you because you are not in a covenant where he promises to remove those who don't do the right thing. You are in a covenant where Christ did the right thing and you are connected intimately with him. Come on. And so that picture of the vine, he is that whole thing and where the branches... You can't tell where he starts and you begin. That's how intimately we are connected with him. Remember, he doesn't say, I'm the trunk and you're the branches. You sort of come off of me. No, that whole thing is me. You are intricately connected, lifeblood with Jesus. If you're a Christian today struggling with unfruitfulness and you read that verse and you think, that doesn't sound too good for me, it sounds brilliant for you. God wants to lift you up. Let the truth of the gospel shine on you and you will see fruit come. The second group of people I want to speak to are those of us who've had a fruitful season. Because he goes on to say, those who are fruitful, I will prune. Be assured that God is not done with you yet. Over 50? Over 60? Any advance on 60? Any Over 70? Any of on 75, 75, 75? Do I see 75? Do I see an 80 here? We do. We've got a, we've got a couple of those. God is not done with you yet. The gardener is committed to pruning your life in order to multiply your fruitfulness in the future. You see, pruning is about trimming last season's growth in order to multiply growth for the next There was a time in our church life where I was pretty fruitful in worship leading. Admittedly, I'm a bit honky-tonk. But for a good few seasons there, I was bearing fruit in this area. Leading worship, singing, playing the keyboard. But that season of growth, that evidence of, oh, that's what Chad bears fruit in, There came a time where that had to be pruned off so that other sprouts could come out and that ministry could grow with others and my growth could go in another area and produce better fruit elsewhere. And some of you know what that's like. You've had fruitfulness in ministry or life in a different area and now you're not manifesting it. You're not in that zone anymore. And for some of you, you feel like that's a struggle because we've tied our identity to our fruitfulness. (laughs) Okay, And that's a good test to go through because our identity needs to be in Jesus, not in our leaves, Okay, not, not in the flowers that we're bearing. Our identity needs to be in him. So it's a good test to go through. And sometimes God just says, you know what, that evidence of ministry, I'm pruning that so that others can grow out of that and I'm causing you to multiply into another zone. Some of you know what that's like. It's part of the reason that when, people, when new folk come to our church here, no matter what reputation they might have had in the past or that season of fruitfulness they've come to, as a general rule, we say, listen, let God graft you into this local vine. Feel the lifeblood of this vine through your veins. Okay, And that might mean that that fruit of your previous season isn't seen here initially. In fact, what God might be wanting to do is he plants you into this vine, is cause you to grow and manifest different fruit in another direction. We're not of that elk of saying the next bass player or preacher or whatever that walks through the door, we say, oh great, you're up next Sunday. Okay, Become part of the vine. Feel the lifeblood of the house through you and it's very possible that you may have a pruning process because of God's wanting new growth in a new season that might look different from the old. The third group of people I'm going to speak to is those who have not yet become part of his garden. You're not yet connected With Jesus. And that's not the greatest place to be in. We've all been there. The majority of us in this room have been there where we've been disconnected from Him and we've come to realize, you know what, it's a whole lot better if I am. Because Jesus is the source of a life eternal. And you may be a beautiful plant. In fact, I guarantee you, you're a beautiful plant. You are beautiful. And you can live life on this earth and you can live a beautiful life. But you will not experience eternal life unless you are plugged into the eternal life source. And so as we read John before he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, a couple of chapters earlier, when he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And he says, what I want you to do is believe in me because you cannot have life without me. I am the way to the Father. I am truth. I am the way of eternal life. So believe in me. If you do not know Jesus today, you have not been joined to him as a vine. Or you don't know if you are. Today's the day you can say, Lord, connect me. I believe in you. I want to be a part of your garden. Connect me. I acknowledge you as the source of eternal life. Without you, I can't be fruitful forever. Finishing up. Our growth pillar. I should ask the musicians to come just to make sure I finish. Would you appreciate that? makes you sort of feel like, all right, it's drawing to close now. Does it make any difference? It should, Rob. Our growth pillar says this, with God, our creator, do we have that? With God, our creator and caretaker, We at Bayside believe in organic life. We believe in colour and creativity where fruitfulness and increase is naturally supernatural. The church I see, now that you know who I am, I want you to know who you are and now you know who you are, I want you to know what I'm building together with y'all. The church I see is both natural colourful and fruitful one of the things one of the reasons that many of you love gardening is because it's just good to be in something that's not fake it's just not I mean no offence to those who run businesses with fake plants but there's something glorious about the organic nature of a garden and to see a church that's natural Where we're not trying to be something we're not. Not full of loud machinery to keep things going. No, we are organic. We're natural. We're not here to prove anything to anyone. We are connected to Jesus. And fruit is coming. But I'm not here to prove to you I'm anything that I'm not. Because we value authenticity and being natural. There is a place in a garden to be organized. Good gardens, good vineyards are organized. Trellises, structures are built. But they're built to help what happens naturally. They're not built to force things to happen. This is what we're going to do this year. This is our goal. We're going to make that happen. No, this is what God's doing. We better create some infrastructure to, to make sure that that is sustained and healthy. We believe in natural, organic life and ministry. All right? Organised, but not an organisation. We're an organism, natural, organic. I believe in a church that is colourful, where we are works of art. And all of you have a unique colour blend, and that's a good thing. Years ago, Louise had a prophetic picture in a, years ago about a garden and all different flowers, and she said she saw one red one standing up and she felt like that red flower was like, I feel like the odd one out. Well, you all are the odd one out. Because you all have a unique colour to add to the garden. We believe in colour. We believe in creativity. So for goodness sake, be natural and be yourself. And be your best self. Amen. Amen. And we believe, I see a church that is fruitful fruitful in character because the fruit of the spirit is love and joy peace kindness self-control brotherly kindness etc patience i believe in a church that is fruitful i believe in a church that has whose leaves are for the healing of nations and whose grapes produce wine that brings great life i believe in a church that is fruitful it's a hard comedy to watch i love it cuz i think it's hilarious but it's also very painful to watch ABC's Utopia has anyone watched that? Yeah. The, whole, the whole television program is, is based upon a government workplace where nothing gets done it's all talk it's all theory, it's all ideology it's all fluffing around, a lot of people are doing a lot of things but nothing actually happens at the end of the day, it's hilarious and it's painful I want to live a fruitful life I want to live a fruitful life. I want to be not all talk and no action, but fruit that is substantiated. And if you have a sense that, you know what, if I was to audit the fruit in my life, I know, I've got a sense that there can be more. Well, number one, get yourself into the light. Remind yourself of who he is. Remind yourself of who you are. And allow and be happy with seasons of pruning. Because it might just be a season of pruning you're going through. Because God's wanting to open up new growth in you. Any of that helpful this morning? Bless you. Once you stand to your feet? I want to pray over you. I am finishing. Leave me alone. I want to pray Ephesians chapter 3 over you. Let's look at this, look this on the screen together. And I pray. There it is. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the Creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources he would empower you with inner strength through his spirit as Christ makes his home in your hearts as you trust in him. I pray that your roots grow down into God's love and it keeps you strong. And may you have power to understand as all God's people should just how wide, how long, how high and how deep this love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to really understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all fruitfulness of life and the power that comes from God. Now, all glory to God, who is more than able, through His mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory be to Him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. And everybody said, Turn in! Come on, give me that hand clap. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.